When God tells us strange stories, or strange sounding stories, we have a choice. We can dismiss them because they sound strange, or we can realise that he is getting our attention and wants to speak to us. And uh, that's what's going to happen this morning. We're going to read a a brief couple of stories from the life of a guy called Elisha, uh, for whom it seems almost nothing normal ever really happened. And we're looking at his life as part of this series, The People of God and the Power of God. And I believe God wants to get your attention, wants to speak to you this morning uh, through these. And um, as I say, they, they are, they're unusual in themselves. Uh, if you want to then have some context, they get even more unusual. So the stories before uh, what we're reading today, uh, Elisha raises a young boy who died uh, from the dead. The story that follows these two stories uh, is he heals an army general of a virulent skin disease. So there's no escaping that God is wanting to kind of speak to you in a way that will shock you, surprise you, get your attention. But what these stories will do if we listen to them is they will tell us that the God of the Bible is a God who saves us, who rescues and intervenes. And that's what we're going to see today in 2 Kings uh, chapter 4, starting in verse 38. And Elisha came again to Gilgal, where there was a famine in the la- when there was a famine in the land. And as the sons of the prophets were standing before him, he said to his servant, Set on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. One of them went out to the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds and came and cut them up into this pot of stew, not knowing what they were. And they poured out some for the men to eat. But while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, Oh man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. He said, Then bring flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, Pour some out for the men that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. A man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. And so he set it before them, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Let's ask God to speak to us uh, through these stories this morning as he already has been. Lord, we love that you're alive and that you're uh, wilder than our imaginations and that you're good. And I want us to be conscious of that this morning. I want us to hear you and to know you. And so please help us to hear from you. Amen. To help us understand these stories, I want you to consider the past that they refer to, the present, what's happening right there and then, and also to the future that they point towards. Start with the past. We're told that this story happens in a place called Gilgal. And place can often be very important because it it links the present to the past. Um, I've been to Barcelona, an amazing city. I've been to uh, the cathedral of the La Sagrada Familia. Uh, Within that amazing city, an amazing cathedral. Just made me grin the whole time of how insanely incredible uh, that building was. And I was wandering around it and taking loads of photos. This is just wonderful. 
But in the rather nondescript town of Bedford, there is a fairly ugly looking 1960s squat building that got renovated in the mid 80s and then again in the mid 2000s and doesn't look any better to be honest. But that place means so much more to me than the most beautiful cathedral I've ever been in. Because that's the place where I was brought to uh, when I was 14, 15 uh, by some friends and where I heard the gospel. That's where I became a Christian. That's where I was baptised. That's where I first started preaching. And so the difference in those two places, one is lovely. I'd love to go there again. But that place, God did things to me there and for me there. And so that place means something more. And that may be true for you. There'd be places where you would say, that place I remember, that time I remember, maybe if you were to uh, maybe you move on from Edinburgh one day and then 20 years time you'd come back and you'd, you'd want to search out this building because you'd remember, oh, it was in this place that I heard the gospel. It was in this place that I met those friends. Maybe where your small group meets, maybe where you work and God uh, works miraculously or just does something, shows his faithfulness to you in some place in this city. That, that place will have power for you, as it were. It almost becomes sacred in that we remember what God did to us and God did for us there. And that's, that's just what, that, that's what can happen in life. It's certainly true of what can happen in the Bible. Place in the Bible is often very important because things that happen in a certain place in the past are meant to speak into the present as well. And Gilgal is one of, that pla- one of those places. Gilgal's first mentioned in the book of Joshua. And this is hundreds of years uh, before Elisha. And what had happened was God's people had been slaves in the land of Egypt. And famously, God had rescued them uh, out of Egypt. He'd parted the Red Sea. They'd escaped into the wilderness. And they were due to come into the promised land. uh, But because they didn't believe God, that took them about 40 years and what should have taken about four days. But eventually... God brought them into the promised land. And another miraculous parting of the, of the waves, uh, the River Jordan is parted so that the people of Israel can walk from the east into the west and into the promised land. And it's at Gilgal where they stop. They go through the river, they take some huge stones from the river to remember what happened and they place the 12 of them in Gilgal and it's a sign to them. God brought us in here. That's not the only thing they do. Once they've put the 12 stones down to remind themselves forever that this is where God miraculously brought them into the land, they then have a Passover meal. And the Passover meal was instituted at the time of the Exodus. It's when a lamb was slaughtered and its blood was put on the doorposts and that meant that the people within were safe uh, from the angel of God. And they also had bread with that meal as well, unleavened bread, ready to move at a moment's notice. And then the next time they have that meal, once in Egypt as slaves, the next time at Gilgal, as people freed by God, rescued from slavery. And it's at the same point, in the same town of Gilgal, that God stops miraculously feeding them with manna. Manna is a rather mysterious substance that whilst the people of God were wandering in the wilderness all those 40 years, God provided it to them for their food. Six days a week, they'd wake up in the morning and outside the camp where they were, there would be manna everywhere and they were to harvest it and take it home and cook it. And without it, they would have died because they were in a wilderness. There's nothing to eat. God provided it for them, provided it for them, and then they get to Gilgal and now they're in a land that sustains them. And so the manna stops and they start to eat from the land. 
This is all what's going on in this town where they are. These are the memories in this very place where this story is happening. And you might be like, well, that sounds like some interesting history. It's not meant to feel like interesting history. It's meant to be speaking to them right there and right then. We're talking today about how God is a God who saves. And the stories we've read can sound like, oh, that's nice, that's God providing. But no, these are stories of rescue. And Gilgal is a place that reminds God's people he is a God who rescues. The word salvation, its base meaning in Hebrew, where it originally comes from, means to be brought into a spacious place. To feel trapped and hemmed in and enslaved and then to be brought out into a new place. And that is what literally had happened for the people of Israel. And that's what God continues to do. And so they're meant to feel that. They're meant to be aware of that. People who live in Gilgal, people who know of Gilgal, are meant to think Gilgal, the place where God brought us through and brought us out and provided and saved us. The trouble is, most of God's people had forgotten this. When you look around at the time of Elisha, he is really, he and the small community around him are like an isolated incidence of faithfulness. Most people in the land are no longer trusting the God who brought them miraculously into the land. They're trusting instead to the nations around them. These large nations that have different beliefs and the people are like, well, maybe we should do what they do. We should have a king like they do. We should worship their gods like they do. We should believe their ideas rather than the ones that God has given us. They have forgotten what God has done for them. They might say, oh, well, no, of course we remember that. That's why we're here. But now we're living like this. And that's not what they're meant to do. How does this happen? Because this can happen to all of us. Maybe you're a Christian here today and God's done some remarkable things in your life. But things just happen, don't they? That, that make you forget in some way. And you think, oh, I don't really know how that happened, but it kind of seems to have happened. Or perhaps more pertinently, you think that was the past. And we can have a nostalgia about our salvation. Nostalgia about how God spoke to us, how he broke into our life. That kind of says, those were the days. I remember then, God, I mean, he just spoke and I believed him and he did it. Man, I was young then, pretty foolish then, believed anything then. Whereas now I'm a bit more wise, I'm a bit more settled, I'm a bit more mature. Those were those days. And that's not how it's meant to be for God's people. Memories aren't meant to be nostalgic. They're meant to be faith-stirring. There's a place called Letton Hall in Norfolk. That's where I became a Christian. That's where the people from that church and the ugly building took me to a slightly nicer looking building uh, for a youth weekend away and God spoke to me. So in my memory, the picture that he gave me that was him saying, I want you to step towards me. I've come this far towards you. Remember the summer of 2000, five years later, I uh, responded to God in 95, absolutely. I then spent most of the next five years acting like I hadn't done. And in the summer of 2000, God grabbed hold of my life. He totally turned it around. just made me see and understand what it meant to be a follower of him and, and to love him and to live for him. And it's not like I kind of think 2000, no more mistakes from there. There were plenty of mistakes, but something absolutely changed. And I remember in the summer of 2001, kind of thinking, wow, that's been a whole year. That's been my life since last summer to this summer. God's changed it. And then I remember in 2002 being like, wow, that is two whole years. And still every summer I'm like, man, it's now been 16 years. God, you've done these things. And when I remember that, it gives me 
faith gives me confidence that God's still at work. Helps me believe and trust that today, just as he did in 95 and he did in 2000, he will be at work. It gives me faith when I see other people and I think, God, how are you going to change their life? And then I remember what the idiot that I was and think, actually, no, God, you changed my life. It gives me faith and think, well, God, if you could do it with me, you could do it with this person. You had mercy on them, mercy on me, you could have mercy on them. And so the past isn't the past, it's in the present. It's stirring our faith, it's causing us to believe God can save and rescue and that God will be involved now. It's not simply that he used to do it, it's that he will do it today. He'll do it for me, I pray. Lord, you haven't changed. If you, I mean, you certainly haven't changed in the last, I don't know, 5,000 years. So why would you have changed in the last 16 years? And so my faith grows. And so I pray with fresh confidence and believe him. That's a challenge for us. Because we can be like, I can tell you the story of when God changed my life. There was a moment, and often for us there is a moment but then there should be many more moments because we meant to walk with him every day and know him all the time. So that's the background to the story. That's how the people were supposed to be living. And Elisha and his community are like the only people who are really living that way. And even within that community, Elisha is the one really leading them in that. The rest of the nation isn't. But for these guys, they're living in a subsistence economy. That means that you spend most of your time and most of your energy getting food to last you through that day. For most people here, that's a completely unusual, that's just not a concept you're used to at all. Some of you will have experienced that. Some of you maybe still are experiencing it. But the main thing and the, the, the urgent issue is, will I have enough food for today? That's how these guys were living. To make matters worse, they were in the midst of a seven-year famine. Told at the start of the story, there's a famine. And that means food is not just a pleasantry. Food's not just, it's not just essential. I mean, we all know that food's essential. But if you're in this situation, you know that food is essential. Food is a matter of life or death. And so we then have these two stories that just seem quite short and quite random to us, but they're not at all. Firstly, we discover never let a prophet cook for you. I know we were offering a couple of lunches earlier. I want to just assure you that this story has nothing to do with them. They're going to be excellent. You're going to have a good time if you go and eat in either of those lunches. But here there's someone who uh, just goes out and says, well, I'll see what I can find, probably because there's not much to find in the land and doesn't seem to have thought to himself, man, everyone seems to have left this plant alone. <laughs> it's not the kind of Bear grill something. You need a Bear grills alongside being like, don't eat that, find something else, you know, find whatever. But he did. He's like, great, I'll take this. In one of those things that I don't really know how Bible commentators know this kind of thing, but they're like, oh, we think it's this plant. And it's a, a small yellow melon-like plant um, that apparently is a powerful laxative <laughs> and is fatal in large doses. I don't even want to think about how you go from that to that, but that's what, it, that's what people think he put in the pot. You do not want to put that in the pot. And then you have the other story where some small loaves of barley bread are brought. And so barley, yes, like a, like a, we think loaf may be like that. Loaf is like that. And 20 of them are brought, and there's 100 hungry men. And you think 20 into 100 doesn't go enough. But God works miracles in both of these moments. 
And these are miracles that are more than just pleasant. For us, a miracle of more food, for most people here, is more food. How lovely. For these guys, it's like more food. We get to live another day. They bring desperately needed life. And both these stories are resolved by life-giving words. It isn't just like, oh, I don't know how that happened, but suddenly the poison stew wasn't poison anymore. I don't know how that happened. We suddenly had loads more bread. In both situations, God speaks. Elisha commands that flour be added to the stew. And he says, now, eat that. That's the word of God speaking. He gets more directly from God with the, uh, the loaves. He says, for thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. And in case you weren't sure of that, the very next line says the same thing. It says, they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. God is the one who saves them. God is the one who changes the situation. And he does, through, he does so through speaking. And again, no, this is the present miracle, this is the story we're focusing on, but you can't not hear what's being said through the past as well. Because Gilgal's where the manna stopped. And there was a lesson in the manna that Moses told the people in Deuteronomy 8 verse 3. He says, God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That was the lesson of the manna. That's why God doesn't just make it happen with these miracles, that there is a spoken word that brings the change of God. And so these miracles are telling us the same thing that the manna told us, that it is God alone who saves. It is God alone who gives life. Now, it's probably about time that we actually talk about what goes on in these stories, isn't it? Because some of you here are like, yeah, yeah, but still they put some flour on some poison and it wasn't poisoned. And, you know, there were 20 loaves and 100 people ate more than enough. What's going on? These stories aren't normal. Most lunches don't get recorded in the Bible. They're not like, and they had some food again. But when God intervenes, and it's really that point that God intervenes, this is a simple, but I, I don't think a simplistic explanation. Christianity asserts that there is a God who is all-powerful and who intervenes in his creation. And if you grant that premise, it must be possible for him to take a poison stew and make it not poison. It must be possible for him to take 20 loaves and make them feed more than 100 people. Now, you might not agree with that first point, but do you see how it, it makes sense within this, the world of the Bible? That those of us here who are Christians would say, this is our experience of God. He gets involved. He breaks through. He breaks in. And so that changes the question. The question is no longer, could that have happened? The question is, why did it happen like that? Why does God need props? If God can provide uh, if God can make stew not poisonous anymore, why do you need to pour on some flour? If God can feed 100 people with 20 loaves, well, why do you need any loaves? Why doesn't he just, you know, zap them and they are sustained for another day? I think the answer is that the salvation God gives us is real. And it's right now. Sometimes we think of it as, as something ethereal, something not, it, it's a part of our life. You might think of it, oh, the spiritual part of my life. Actually, the Bible says, no, the salvation that God gives us is absolutely real and right now and here and tangible. Salvation is a restoration of what should have been. 
and what should be. Food isn't meant to be scarce or poisonous. We're meant to have enough. And when God acts in this way, he shows that that's the case. And he doesn't just show in a kind of abstract way. He shows to us that he knows us and he loves us and he cares for us. And he cares for us practically. You might think, oh, God's forgiven my sins. That's great. But he isn't interested in the rest of my life. No, he absolutely is. That's why he provides food for the hungry. That's why Jesus told us to pray for our daily bread. It's when we say to God, I need you to look after me. Again, we can be so used to many of our provision being kind of sorted in a long-term plan that we lose the edge of this. But we're not meant to. Whether your food comes from heaven directly or via Tesco, it's God's gift to you. And in all of these things, God is speaking to you. Maybe you're just only now starting to hear properly. Maybe you remember when God just, he just, you started to, you started to, it's like you hear him and you see him at work in a way that you didn't before. Maybe you're not a Christian, but you're, you feel like you're starting to become on a journey and things are happening that are just making you think, this makes a lot more sense than I thought. And now I'm nodding along when someone tells me that a poison stew gets healed with some flour. And that's because you're starting to hear and starting to see things as they really are. That there is a God who is alive and who speaks, and who cares for you. So that's how the past speaks into the present of those, for those guys. But their story wasn't just for them, it was pointing them forwards. Elisha's life story is amazing, uh, but ultimately he is just a signpost for someone else. And some of you may have picked this up already, but the parallels between Elisha and Jesus of Nazareth are remarkable. There's a whole load of them. Here's just a couple. They have the same name. Well, you like, no, they don't. <laughs> I know what Elisha sounds like. I know what Jesus sounds like. Elisha means El, that's God. El, Sha, um, means saves. So it means, Elisha means God is salvation. Now, we take the Greek form of Jesus' name, which is Jesus. But in Hebrew, he would have been known as Yeshua. And I, oh, that's starting to sound slightly more familiar, or slightly similar. The Shua, again, is salvation, but instead of God, it's, the Israel, it's Israel's name for God, Yahweh, at the start. So it's Yahweh saves. So Elisha is called God saves. Jesus is called God saves, God by a different name. They've got the same name. They both perform loads of miracles, and they're both able to make bread go a lot further than it should. And so when we see this story, we're meant to think, that's not the last time that happened. But what happens the next time that happened, as it were. John chapter 6 tells us that Jesus once fed a crowd of around 5,000 men plus women and children with five barley loaves and two fish. I love it. It's even the same type of bread. (laughs) How crazy is that? Barley was the first harvest of the year. This is the first time you got food. And God in that abundant moment says, I'm going to give you more than I've even given you. And obviously this is a sensational miracle. If you were there, you're going to think... I'm going to listen to this guy from now on. I'm going to do whatever this guy wants. In fact, I'm going to tell him what I want him to do, which is I'm going to make him king. And there follows one of these typical conversations that Jesus often has between uh, himself and people for whom he's just done an amazing miracle. They start off very excited. They soon get very cross because he tries to take their focus away from the bread, as good as that is, to the one who provides the bread. And he tells them that they're only following him to get more bread. And he says, I want to give you something better. And they say to him, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. 
That's the manna again. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He goes on to say, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am living, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And many people leave him at that point. They, they find it literally hard to swallow what he is saying. Because at that point he says, I don't want you just to believe me for lunch. I don't want you just to believe me for one area of my life. I want you to believe me for everything. And I want you to trust me only. To the exclusion of everything else. Whoever believes in me, whoever trusts in me, whoever gives themselves to me. Jesus says this is the only way to be saved. To be brought into the spacious place of forgiveness, from our, forgiveness of our sins. And knowing God and knowing his love. So what about you? Jesus wants all of your trust because only he can rescue you. I don't know what you're trusting in here today. I don't know what the thing is or who the person is who you think I would be hopeless if that thing was taken away from me. That's usually a fairly quick way of working out what you're putting your trust in. And it's not that those other things are necessarily wrong, but they're not God. And they can't provide for you the eternal life that God offers to you. Jesus is where your hope should be. And Christians, if you're a Christian here, you have to remember that again and again and again because it's true every day. Not just that moment in the past, but in the present. And that's why Jesus gave us a meal to eat again and again and again. Not just to talk about that thing that happened once, but to encounter now the life of God. To know now, today, that God is at work in our life and powerfully saving us and rescuing us. And so we're going to take communion together right now. And the practical team are going to come through and they're going to uh, pass some bread around and some wine and you, uh, or some juice in cups and they'll be for you to take. And we're going to eat this meal together. And some of you will know when Jesus instituted this meal. Don't worry, they'll come through in a moment. Some of you will know when did Jesus institute this meal? At the Passover. Oh, the Passover. Yeah, that was first celebrated in Gilgal, where God also provided miraculously hundreds of years later, and now a few more hundred years later after that, God is taking that original freedom meal. And Jesus says, you think of this in terms of freedom from Egypt, I'm now giving you freedom from your sin. Because my life is going to rescue you. And so as the trays are passed along, you can take a piece of bread. And this represents Jesus' body 
that was given for you. And you take a, a little cup of juice and that represents Jesus' blood that was shed for you. And it is by this that we are saved. This is the life and death meal which God now offers you. That by putting your trust in him and what he did on the cross, the, night, the day after this meal, he dies, his body takes your punishment. And so this is life and death for us. This is salvation for us. And this is present right now, today. This is his, what he gives to us, the life and the hope that in the past this event happened and it won us our freedom, that today we can experience it and know his hope and his love right now and that tomorrow in that great future that he is bringing closer and closer every day, we will be with him forever, free from all the struggles of this world. Saved, absolutely, fully, wonderfully saved. I know sometimes when um, people speak on the Bible and they say, oh, and there's this thing, there's this thing, and this thing, and sometimes what you can just think is, man, how did they find that out? And the answer is mostly I just kind of read it in some books and followed references and things like that in the Bible. But I was aware when I was doing that that this the tapestry of these events is phenomenal. I just, I, I, in my head I was like, oh, I wonder where they, there's definitely a point where someone says, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. It sounded like a psalm to me, and I think it is a psalm. But then I found it in John 6, just after Jesus feeds the 5,000 with the bread, and that takes us back to the first story. And I just want you to know, this is how God weaves and writes the stories of our lives. Your life is not random. Your life is not just a series of events, unfortunate or otherwise. They are told by a master storyteller who brings it all together in himself and his son. So I want to encourage you. Eat this bread that is life to you and hope. And then drink this drink, which is a promise a new covenant in my blood, Jesus says. This is your salvation. This is your hope. This is what God has done for you. It covers the past. It's effective in the present. And it, will, and it ensures you a glorious future with him. The band are going to come up and we're going to sing a song to celebrate this. And this is a moment just for you to consider again who and what you're trusting in. Maybe you want to uh, close your eyes and, and focus in on God in this moment. And just 
turning to God again and believing that there is a present reality of him with you, not just that past moment when he saved you and maybe did that remarkable thing. And it's right and fitting for me to celebrate each summer again, another year of God's faithfulness, another year of God's faithfulness. But if I just think of it as that past event, I miss out on the fact that God is speaking and working today and will continue to do so. And so whatever that looks like for you, if you just think, I'm just not sure I'm believing God at the moment. I'm not sure I'm trusting God at the moment, that he will save me and bring me into this spacious place. He's inviting you to trust him again today. Others of you, uh, you're, you're not sure you believe this at all. You say, well, I don't have that past event. I'm, I haven't given my life to Jesus. Well, he's been speaking to you today. And even now, maybe you're just starting to see your life story, even the fact that you're here in this building today as a plan from God to bring you to himself and to save you from all that you've done wrong, from your own mistakes, the hurts other people have caused you, and to know him and to love him and to live for him for the rest of your days. If that's you and, and, and today, suddenly it's made sense, I want to ask you to come and speak to me or go up to the ministry team afterwards and say, could you help me through with this, please? The Bible says today is the day of salvation. And so, Lord, whether we're still trying to work this through or whether we know it, and so we're still trying to work it through, thank you that you save. Thank you that you can be trusted. Thank you that you've spoken and you're still speaking. Help us to put our trust in you fully, Lord God. Amen. Amen.